Well, welcome back to Crazy Fate Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. Well, friends, back in November, we did a short series where we talked about various Christian holidays and even the the semi-secular holiday of Thanksgiving that all happened in the month of November. And so we decided, since um, we are past Advent and now in Christmastide, uh, that we wanted to look at some of the holidays that happened on the church calendar in the new year in January. So, Steve, where are we starting this off at? Well, um, we are, even though we are still, I guess, by one way of reckoning it, still in the days of Christmas tide and those 12 days mm-hmm. of Christmas. So we're in the midst of Piper's piping and Lord's leaping and things okay. like that. Um, eight days after the day of Christmas, uh, which means it always falls on New Year's Day, is... Um, the uh, day that celebrates the the naming of Jesus. Um, and I guess I'll say, unlike some church holidays or church year festivals that are kind of random or fudging it that we really don't have a good guess about when they would have happened, there is at least a logic to why the name of Jesus is celebrated eight days after Jesus was born. Like we've talked before how we're not really sure when Jesus was actually born in the time of year and that there's evidence to suggest maybe it was closer to springtime if there are shepherds who've got their, you know, flocks outside by night, it's not too cold, that kind of thing. But um, once you say, okay, we're going to celebrate Christmas on December 25th, eight days later is when traditionally um, the firstborn sons of good, faithful, obedient, Torah-observing Jewish families in the first century would have had their children circumcised and named. And so we get that kind of storytelling in the Gospels, right? Correct. Yeah, so this is, um. oh, now I'm going to completely blank. Is it Luke or Matthew that has the story of Joseph and Mary taking baby Jesus to the temple? And then that's where they meet Simeon and Anna. That's a story we get out of Luke and late in Luke 2. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And- okay, so yeah, the Gospel of Luke. That's That's the story of Jesus being circumcised and named. And blessedly, Luke doesn't give us the details of the actual circumcision, um, but notes that Mary and Joseph being, again, good Mm -hmm. and faithful and devout, go to the temple. They offer the appropriate sacrifices. I think we might have talked before when we had an episode highlighting Anna and Simeon before that there's that curious detail that um, Joseph and Mary offer two pigeons or turtle doves as their sacrifice. Um, And Luke doesn't like fill in the details there. But if you go back to the commandments in the Torah, for the sacrifice you're supposed to offer at the naming of a son or naming of a child. Um, There's two sacrifices that can be offered. There's one for regular income. And then if you're poor, you could offer like the smaller sacrifice of two turtle doves. Um, And so it's it's like Luke giving this sort of like some nod of like Mary and Joseph were not rich. These were the, these were the poor and their way of being devout was to offer what they could. Um, And there at that ritual and that, and that ceremony, um, Jesus is formally named. So this is such an interesting moment, right? Like, because it's um, emphasizing Mary and Joseph's um, commitment to their faith of they are, you know, devout Jews. And it's, it's, and I don't know if this is just me and my brain, but I always feel like when I'm studying history, whether it's the Bible 
or history textbooks or whatever, I just sort of automatically assume that everyone is religious in some way (laughs) and that there isn't really such a thing as just secular people in the way that today you have plenty of people who go to church or synagogue or mosque every religious day, whether that's their Saturday or Sunday or holidays. Um, And then you have a portion of the population who are, you know, in the church, we like to call them see see and ears, you know, people who go on Christmas and Easter, they say that they believe, but they don't necessarily practice that faith on a week to week week basis. And then we have a whole nother set of our population who do not practice religion at all and possibly will even say that they don't believe anything about Mm -hmm. god or religion um but when i study history i always sort of assume that that third population that secular atheist population doesn't exist um but that's i think just a weird bias that i have in my brain that's not true that i'm sure that throughout history whatever period in place you're looking at there's probably a portion of the population that didn't practice faith um their faith and so i'm sure that there were people who were living in the same town as mary and joseph who were um Jews, but non-practicing Jews who might not have done this for their firstborn son. Yeah, like you even get the sense too, since there are so many stories about uh, Jesus and family going to temple for a festival or something like that, that yeah, this was a part of his formative life, but that like by the time you get to the first century, there are so many people who clearly aren't leaving their homes and farms every festival to go up to Jerusalem because they couldn't. They had to mind the business or the farm or somebody. It was someone in the family's turn to go and someone has to stay at home. But yeah, that, that's an interesting thought that that by highlighting Jesus' family is devout and do make the trips. They do observe the rituals, but maybe not everybody had that same level of fervor. Um and yeah, that might have been something that stood out. I- I'm remembering too, somewhere back in my college learning, I'm I'm remembering reading somebody who suggested the history of the village of Nazareth. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure all the details of uh what where they what they based their claim on. Um, but the the author I, I'm recalling had uh, archaeological or or textual evidence to believe that the people who settled Nazareth, uh, you know, the small little town that barely gets mentioned in a lot of first century like um, uh, atlases of places, was a, a sort of a hotbed of like really really devout families who sort of imagined themselves or saw themselves as the faithful ones carrying on you know authentic Judaism, and that even the word Nazareth, the name Nazareth, may come from the Hebrew netzer for root. Like these are the people who were faithful to the roots of their of, of Judaism and the sort of the root of Jesse, that kind of thing. Um, and that they might well have believed it was it was reasonable that the Messiah might have come from their village or their town, even if everybody else dismissed them. Um, and whether or not that's that's the case, it, it, it at least highlights that, yeah, there would have been some communities that were really, really strongly devout and others that were more cosmopolitan, where, where some people just, uh, it, it was just a mix of some who were very devout and some who weren't. In, in any case, because Mary and Joseph are presented as being dutiful, faithful, Torah obedient uh, a couple, they bring their child, and part of the ritual is for the child to be formally named. And I guess a, a piece of me wonders whether the timing 
in ancient Judaism of waiting to the eighth day for formal naming, um, both allowed for a certain amount of time for family and friends to get to be there because you're not, you know, talking about, well, I'll just drop, drive in the car and I'll meet you at the church, you know, um, uh, you know, two days after the baby's born. It gives time for the news to get out, uh, but also that with the, the reality of infant mortality, that there might be like this, we have to wait, make sure the child mm-hmm. is likely to survive. Um, and by that point, then we are ready to, to name. I, I can remember hearing stories in my, my wife's family when they talk about going back several generations where in the, on the family farm, an, uh, an early infancy, that the child died in infancy or something. And I can remember hearing a story where the name that the, the baby who died was given then to the next baby when it was born, uh, like sort of like, well, it didn't take with the previous child. And so we just name you after the the same name we were going to give the, the brother who passed away in infancy. And I guess like, man, for a lot of human history, we've had to live with the reality of we're not really sure once a baby is born, are they going to live? I imagine at least that's a piece of the timing. I think the piece of the, there's another part of the piece of the timing, which is related of mm-hmm. making sure that the baby is strong enough. Yeah. Um, because like childbirth is such an exhausting ordeal for both mom and baby to give that baby time to then rest and start gaining its weight back. Yeah. Like, you know, cause the first week of life you lose weight and then you slowly start gaining it after the first week. And so ideally on day eight, you're, you're no longer losing weight. You are now starting to go upwards of gaining weight. You've kind of figured out the whole eating thing. um, And you can like have now weight gain. Yeah. There's, there's also surely in Jewish tradition, that's that sense of the number eight, having that sense of we've completed the whole cycle Mm -hmm. of seven and like the, just like the the cycle of seven days in the creation. Now we're on to a new week and a new sort of, uh, there's that sense of completeness. And I remember hearing once that circumcision would, they would wait until the eighth day. They didn't realize this then, but we we know this now um, through science that that's when blood starts clotting. and so you know when god placed this idea of waiting till the eighth day to circumcise a young boy he's doing it to save the young boy's life yeah interesting (laughs) so um so i you know that that's and the fact that the naming happens with the circumcision and all that and it's also a time of purification you know after mary has had a child there's so many days of waiting right um, for a woman to be pure again so that she can enter the temple Mm-hmm. And all those rituals are sort of sort of combined in this story in this moment mm-hmm. of as Jesus comes, he's given the name formally of Jesus, uh, or that's our our way of pronouncing what would have sounded more like Yeshua or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and circumcised and the rites of purification, all these things happen, and the sort of the temple is the locus for all those things. Um, I I have a question about day eight that you may or may not know the answer to. If day eight was the Sabbath, would the circumcision still happen Mm -hmm. on the Sabbath or would they wait until day nine? That is a good question. Uh, And I I guess in all my recollections of the stories of um, uh, reading through the the commandments about Sabbath regulation things, I don't remember ever reading any, any provisions about shift it if it's on a Sabbath. Um, but my, I guess my gut sense of how a lot of the logic of those things works is that they're real, real clear on you don't do work on the Sabbath and that you would shift things either early or late. But that's, that's a good question. But, so, but like, is this work or is it a religious ritual? 
and considering the Sabbath starts from it runs from sundown to sundown from Friday to Saturday, mm-hmm. you could do it before you could do it on Friday, which could be the eighth day, but do it before mm-hmm. sundown. No, because they or, view days from sundown to or sundown, sundown to, to yeah. So they would so, have considered day eight to be the complete Sabbath. Yeah, there's so a, then, there's but a but whole. But you could 20- have done it after sundown on Saturday. No, yeah. I guess, yeah, but, but okay, then they I, would I consider that day yeah. nine. I don't know. Yeah. I, this is a good question. This is so at some point we'll have to we'll have to inquire with some of our Jewish neighbors about what current or ancient practice might have been. Um, I guess, and again, I I realize that we're climbing out on a limb here, but like when I think about when the story is told about the burial rituals for Jesus, even though that's almost as uh, holy and somber of religious ritual as you can get that has to be rushed because of the Sabbath Mm -hmm. coming, at least as Luke tells it. Uh, If that's anywhere close to accurate, then it would suggest that there's a sense of on Sabbath, we don't do things even that are religious rituals. And therefore we either have to make it early or have to make it later or something like that. But I don't don't know that for certain. That's just sort of a gut Mm. guess. Ah, I just Googled it because I was curious. Um, According to a website that's from a Jewish organization that has frequently asked questions and answers. Well, this sounds reliable. Uh, <laughs> the law of circumcision overrides the Sabbath, hmm. seeing oh. that it must be performed on the on eighth, eighth day. Well, that's fascinating. Huh. Um, so yeah, it overrides the Sabbath. It has to happen on Which day eight. Makes sense because a good observing Jewish family would be going to synagogue on the Sabbath, on Shabbat. And since circumcisions happen at a synagogue, typically. Yeah, although, it would like, be part of the... I guess, like, the, the original commandments given before there's such a thing as a synagogue, you know, like, there's, there it, it it's not until, you know, centuries later after exile that the, that, but yeah. Well, but they're going to the temple, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, so... It seems like at least one one Jewish voice on the internet has pointed us in the direction of the eighth day rule supersedes uh, observance of the Sabbath. Fair enough. Um, All right. Thank you for going down my rabbit hole with me. That's that, that is literally what this podcast is for. He was getting to track down our various church nerdery theological rabbit holes. Um, Learn something new. Yeah. Um, maybe we should spend a little more uh, time though looking at like the the other piece of this day and that's the actual giving of the name jesus because that sort of mm-hmm. shows up uh not only in that story we talked about where they go to the temple and okay they they give him the name jesus but matthew's gospel has a little bit more to to say about the meaning of the name jesus mm-hmm. and sort of like even announces in advance here's what you're supposed to name your kid um in in uh, matthew's telling of the story yeah when the angel comes to so Mary has, the angels come to Mary. She is pregnant. Joseph's ready to divorce her. The angel comes to him and says, no, wait, hold on. This child is special. Don't divorce her. Take her to be your wife. And the angel tells him that what to name him, which let's be honest, is kind of unusual for Jewish practice. Mm-hmm. You know, typically a child is named after somebody in the family, right? 
Um, but yet the, the, the angel comes to Joseph and says that you should give him the name of Jesus where he will save his people from their sins. So this is a moment to say, like, Matthew probably assumes that his readers have a familiarity with Hebrew or Aramaic to know that the name Jesus or again, Yeshua or something like that um, comes kind of from the Hebrew that means Yahweh saves or Yahweh rescues or something like that. So the name of the Old Testament biblical figure, Joshua, is the same name and means Yahweh saves. And Jesus is named that same name, which would have been pronounced something closer to Yeshua or Joshua or something like that. And that our Greek ancestors in the faith who write, wrote down in Greek uh, the New Testament tr- transliterated that into Jesus because that's how Greek names sort of often end with that mm. uh, ending to them. Um, so we went from Yeshua to Jesus to then in English Jesus. Um, but in any case, it, the name means God saves or Yahweh saves. And so mm. right from the announcing uh, in the in the story in Matthew where the angel says, he will name him God saves because he will save his people from their sins. It's interesting even there that like there's a, there's a direction of what we need saved from, you know, like, cause save is one of those words that can be used in a bunch of different contexts, right? That like it can be, it's the word for, you know, from a physical danger, you know, save me from drowning in the ocean or save me from the monster or save me from the foreign army. Or it's also the verb that you'd use in Greek, at least for like healing, right? So like when, when Jesus heals somebody uh, and, and uh, he'll say to them, your faith has saved you or your faith has made you well. It's the same word you use for for healing or in this case it's a word used for to deal with the consequences of sins there's a second name though that comes in the same passage yeah in a weird way yeah uh uh-huh talk about that so so after the angel tells joseph you'll name him jesus for he will save his people from his sins um matthew writes all this took place to fulfill what has been spoken by the lord through the prophet look the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call him emmanuel which means god with us so we've got a quote from early in the prophet Isaiah, I think Isaiah 7, mm-hmm. right? And there are parts of what Isaiah has to say that kind of line up. There's a young woman who's got a son and uh, they give this child a name. But in the quote or the prophecy from uh, Isaiah, you name the son Emmanuel. And in this case, you name the son Jesus. <laughs> but the name Emmanuel means God with us, right? Mm-hmm. So Matthew seems to be saying, okay, they don't literally name the kid God with us, but I'm telling you that this Jesus is God with us, right? Mm -hmm. This is maybe one of those moments to say like, we kind of talked in other episodes and other series with other topics before, that while the New Testament writers don't come right out with the Nicene Creed as far as the doctrine of the Trinity or the divinity of Jesus, they they come awfully close or they use the language or the idioms of their world to say as much. So like if you say, hey, this kid Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophecy about a child who is God with us, like that's Matthew's way of saying, I'm actually trying to tell you that in Jesus you get no less than God being with us in this person. Um mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to use God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, like the Nicene Creed does. Um, but that's Matthew's way of saying as, as something as loud and clear. And you get the sense that his readers would have understood that as well. This isn't just God coming to the people through a prophet, like yeah. Isaiah and others. This is God as God 
coming amongst his people. Yeah. You know, and whether Matthew, I, I want to believe Matthew fully understood that, um, whether his readers and in, in the first hearers of his message understood that, right. you know, that's another story. But um, yeah, he's he's getting across the fact that this this isn't just a human person who's going to bring a message from God. This is God himself. Yeah. You get the sense, too, throughout Matthew's gospel that he has this way of, like, showing Jesus beside other figures from ancient Israel's history and trying to say how Jesus is yet uh, even more or greater or something. Like So, like, you get Jesus being compared with Moses a number of times, and Jesus then will say things like... Uh, I know you've heard it said this in the law, but now I say to you, as though as though he's speaking with even greater authority than Moses. So again, like if you're a yeah. first century reader, you're like, oh my goodness, this is not just a guy who's on par with Moses. He's greater than Moses. Wow. It's like he Matthew could do that in his storytelling without saying it the way we're we might be used to in creedal mm-hmm. or doctrinal form. I wonder in the first century in the area that Jesus grew up in, how common was the name Jesus or even the name Emmanuel? Yeah. Like, would that been a name that other kids would have had? Or is this like, you know, are they just like super uncommon? Are they common? Like, you know, because we know that Mary is a really popular name in this time and place, right? Because it seems like half the women named in the gospels is Mary. Yeah. Super common name. Um, but I have no idea how common those two names would have been. Well, I guess it just anecdotally, it's worth noting that there are a number of people with the name Jesus who show up in the New Testament, and sometimes they're given other surnames or nicknames or something to separate them from, you know, the son of Jesus, uh, the son of uh, Joseph and Mary. Um, it sticks in my head. There's uh, a Jesus who gets the surname Justice or something like that later in the New Testament, J-U-S-T-U-S. Um, and again, like the, it seems like it would have been clear in the New Testament community to make sure which Jesus are we talking about, mm-hmm. which Joshua are we talking about. And I'm pretty sure, yeah. Isn't uh, the, Jesus Bar- Barabbas? Yeah, Barabbas is thinking. the other one. Yeah. And like that certainly has the feel of like... Um, Matthew plays that up for all the tension that there's sort of two people named Jesus who are going to be uh, on trial and one will be released and one mm-hmm. will be um, one will be condemned. And to double down on that, of course, the name Barabbas means son of the father <laughs> um, in, in Aramaic. So that's even like, oh, man, um, talk about your divine you know, sort of name dropping there. Um, and I guess with the same reason that Mary is popular, because Mary, Mary is just a variation on Miriam, um, which, again, is sort of like a, an Old Testament all-star kind of a name mm-hmm. um, that uh, is, a you know, because Mir- Miriam is such a big figure in the story of, of ancient Israel, Joshua is another big figure. And so to name your kid Joshua, it doesn't even have to have been somebody in the family. It could be, well, I mean, yeah, I'm naming him from the, for the famous Joshua from the story in the Bible, just like. Moisha is a as a popular Jewish name because it's a variation on what we would call Moses. Um and I'm I'm gonna guess that there's some names that because they are figures of prominence earlier in the scriptures or in the story, they continue to be popular throughout. So at least it seems possible that there are plenty of other Yeshuas floating around. And maybe even too, like the fact that so often when Jesus is introduced early on. 
like it's Joseph, son of, you know, Joseph from mm-hmm. Nazareth or Jesus, you know, the one from Nazareth. That kind of, Like, this is clearly a point in history where surnames weren't necessarily uh, like fixed family names, but more like what your dad did for a living or who, what your dad's name was or where you came from. Um, but that, yeah, it's to make it clear, it's Jesus, you know, the one from Nazareth or Jesus, you know, the son of Joseph, that kind of thing. Yeah, you needed to be able to identify yourself separate from everybody else. Like Mary Magdalene, Magdalene wasn't her family name, but rather right. that's a variation of her town so that yeah. people know that, she, oh, mm-hmm. that's that Mary, not the one who claims to have had a virgin birth. No, it's yeah. the other one. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Well, and it, like in a way, if, if this seems weird to our ears, I can remember in in grade school, it was the era where there was like a million Kimberleys and Jennifers in all my classes for a long time. That like there was an era <laughs> where like that was the popular girl's name, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think there were a bunch of Michaels as well. And so like you know, and it, as a as a kid, it didn't seem weird to me that oh yeah, I'm friends with Mike K or Mike T or Mike Z or something like that. Um, and now as a grown up, we have different ways of naming people, but. I, yeah, I, I I went to school with three other Sarahs in a class of 30 kids. Oh my and goodness. so I was Sarah A. <laughs> yeah. And even in high school, when most of the other Sarahs just got their names were now just Sarah or Sarah first name with their last name. Yeah. Lots of kids still called me Sarah A. And I was always kind of like, mm-hmm. nice. Okay. Nice. <laughs> we can move on from this. And that's especially tricky with the name Sarah, because sometimes people use the A to indicate, you know, with, with an A at the end, not an H at the end or something like that. In this case, no, you got the H, but also an A following that. <laughs> yep. Actually, two A's following <laughs> right. it. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, so I, I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is in in the midst of all this conversation the the biblical writers aren't just recording here's stuff that happened but if they're if they're being intentional even artful in i'm giving you these stories for a reason and they take the time to emphasize the name of jesus the ritual that goes along with it but also some old testament prophecies that go along with it why do you think for the biblical writers the name of of jesus or yeshua is is important why would it have been important to them and what difference does it make to us today well, we can jump a little bit later into the New Testament and into Philippians. Okay. In the Christ hymn um, from Philippians chapter two, we hear um, Paul saying in writing that Jesus is the name above all names. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting uh, uh, place there, right? Because there he's quoting what is likely an earlier already existent hymn fragment, either that Paul wrote mm-hmm. or everybody else knew in Philippi. And he's quoting out them, talks about Jesus taking the form of a servant and becoming human and dying on a cross and then being exalted and given the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Right. Um, and even that passage is echoing a place from uh, uh, Isaiah that talks about God having the name that is above all names, Yahweh, and every knee will bow to the name of Yahweh, which again is like one of those places, the new Testament is equating Jesus and the divine. Um, but what i guess i guess what what's even paul's point why is it important is is it there's something magical about the syllables or what it, what is the the point of saying jesus is the name above all names especially if we english speakers aren't saying it the way he would have said it <laughs> it's nothing with the syllables it's nothing you know like 
with numbers or anything that, I, that I'm aware of. So it's not magic. <laughs> no, it's not magic. We've ruled nothing, out magic and gematria. Good, magic. okay. <laughs> um, mystical, yes, not magic. Um, but it's, it's the fact that Jesus is, as as we quoted from the Nicene Creed before, God from God, true light from true light, true God from true God, you know, um, Jesus is above all of creation because mm-hmm. Jesus is the creator along with God. And so that's what puts his name above every other name because he is equal. He is God. He's not equal to, he is God um, along with God, the father and God, the spirit. I always kind of assumed that that was hearkening back to again, equating Jesus as God. Yeah. But also then going back to that moment with the burning bush of, mm. you know, as a way of saying God's name is holy. Yeah. Like we don't, mm-hmm. we, we don't mess around with God's name. Like mm-hmm. we treat it with the respect that we can give it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what I was assumed with that phrase of Jesus's name is above all names. We're going to treat it with the respect that we do with God's name. Um, and then, you know, like you said, Steve, we go around and then don't even pronounce it correctly. <laughs> or, or, well, or the same, like, who knows? Maybe Jesus is perfectly fine with the way that we pronounce Jesus. Well, like, and this is a whole other piece. Like, this could be a whole different rabbit trail. But, like, it is interesting when you get to the point of having a name so holy that you are careful about pronouncing it, you end up with variations and different pronunciations. The same way we have done with what we think nowadays is the, the pronunciation of the divine name that many would guess it would have been pronounced Yahweh. But for centuries in English circles, they pronounced it Jehovah. Um, and, again, these are all different ways of putting the mm-hmm. same vowel or using different vowels with the same consonants for the the four letters uh that we sometimes transliterate y h w h but another earlier generation would have used j v h v or something like that that where you get Mm -hmm. jehovah j h v h for jehovah um it's in, like sometimes we, we lose track. All these different variations are all pointing back to the original same divine name. So Jehovah, that for a long, long time was the way people called God's name, is a variation on Yahweh. And again, in, in English, we just go God as though God's a proper name when it's really sort of not really a proper name. <laughs> it's like boss or sir or teacher. <laughs> um, I, the other thing that, that I find so powerful about the the passage from Philippians that, that you both referenced there is that the the glorification part it comes at the end only after Jesus is the one who's emptied himself and even though and Paul makes mm-hmm. super duper clear he's equal with God and doesn't consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of but empties himself becomes a human being uh and dies even a death on a cross and because of that then therefore is exalted that you can't separate this glorified one from the one who goes to the cross that there's no bait mm-hmm. and switch the one who's glorified is the one with nail marks in his hand and the one who has the name above all names is the one who's born as an anonymous kid laid in a manger in the back water that nobody thought was important um and that there's no separating those two i think that that seems to be part of the really really important notion to me is that um the the idea of of focusing on the name of jesus prevents us from making god just sort of a generic word for 
the greatest thing I can imagine, but it has the particularity of Mm -hmm. this human life, this one who entered into all the messiness and knows what it is to be on the margins and knows what it's like to be treated as a nobody and die on on a cross to be executed as a criminal. This is where God chooses to be. Um, And to me, like this feels very much, maybe it's the Lutheran in me, but feels very, very much like um, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his writings and theology will talk about God being God for us and that, that, uh, instead of just imagining God as just like the supreme being or the ultimate power or something, that God shows that God's choice is always to be God for us. And that means being God with us, like, you know, that Emmanuel notion, mm-hmm. but God acting on our behalf, sort of that whole notion of, of Jesus' name, meaning God saves, God is acting for us, is is on our side, so to speak. And our meaning, like all of humanity, all of the world that God is is committed to, uh, saving, redeeming all of creation, even when we're total stinkers. Um, that that to me, like, is a really, really important piece of why the name of Jesus matters to the extent that it does. It's not that Jesus is is a holier name than Fred or Emmy Lou or something like that, but that Jesus goes to this notion of God is God for us. I guess I think, and again, I, I don't want to muddy the waters by getting too much into other liturgical moments, but I'm just going to stick my toes in the water just a minute. Um, because right around this time uh, in the church year, we also celebrate um, the baptism of Jesus. And I know we're going to talk about that more, uh, but it seems to me important that like part of what the baptism of Jesus is all about is uh, Jesus in solidarity with us. And that like, I know we'll have further conversation there, but like that, that's that thread of continuity that um, it's about Jesus standing with identifying with, with us Mm -hmm. that you sort of even begin to get here when he's named as an infant before he's done anything. Here's God's statement. I'm here with you on your side. Yeah. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Preach it. (laughs) So maybe this would be a time to remind you that we're going to pick up with more conversation about what it means that Jesus is baptized. uh, And maybe what that means for us then as people who are baptized when we talk about that festival next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. Merry Christmas.